Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Real Talk with Real Leaders. I'm excited about the guest I have for you today. It's Bishop Eric Lambert. He has a church here in the Philadelphia area and there's a phenomenal fellowship. Let me just share a little bit about him as we get into this time. He's the presiding bishop of Bethel Deliverance International Fellowship of Churches. There's a television broadcast that he does called Climbing Higher, as well as a radio show where it's a, it's a call-in for the Christian and the culture, so you can call in and interact around that subject. He also has a master's degree in forensic psychology. I just thought that was interesting. He has his bachelor's, he has other things, but the forensic psychology is an in interesting caveat that he has within his portfolio. Uh, he's written some books, he's an author. Uh, one of those books is The Reality of Christian Living, Ingredients of Prayer, The Kneeling Mind, and his most recent, The Christian and the Culture. He's been married to his wonderful wife and has a child and all these other things I could say, his prolificness, he's just a great thinker. And so we're so glad to have you with us today, Bishop. Oh, thanks, I'm glad to be with you, Pastor. God bless. Man, it's, it's just so, you're so gracious to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation and the things that uh, we were talking about a little bit offline, and now we get to talk and have other people hear um, some insights on our conversation. Before we really get into this, I usually just started off with a pretty lighthearted thought or question. And what I was thinking of is how... When I first got into uh, the, a non-denomination church that my dad pastored, um, I had an experience there that was new to me, but it ended up being something later on that I could really appreciate. But initially, it was shocking. It was like, what's going on here? I come from a Spanish Baptist church background. I think we did some Mennonite. We've traveled around Presbyterian Lutheran churches as he was um, garnering support. But uh, at this non-denomination, there was people raising their hands and getting excited during worship. When I looked at that, I was like, I don't understand. What's that for? It was kind of comical for me. But now, as I move forward, I'm like, I'm one of those guys that somebody like me when I was younger would make fun of. Now I realize and I can appreciate the expression and the freedom and uh, all that style of worship of just sometimes lifting your hands and in, in reverence and in, you know, respect and just admiration for God. So I say that that was kind of my church experience. You can't pick mine, so you have to get your own. Uh, what, what kind of experiences have you had that is kind of like now you see where what that how that all fits and works? Yeah, I. I've often wondered why we have orders of service and then we say we give in to the leading of the spirit. And so it tends to fall apart. And I noticed that in Pentecostal circles, I came from a Baptist background and in the Baptist church, we were very formal. Things just kind of ran like clockwork. By the time the preacher stood up to preach, things were already set up and there was nothing else going on when he gave the benediction. But in Pentecostal expression, we're kind of all over the place. Mm. And, uh, but the Lord seems to make it work. And I think in my years as a pastor, I've realized how important it is to trust God and to depend upon him. And he will often break us from the normal pattern 
and then bring us to spiritual enlightenment. So that's been a, 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 an evolution for me to break away from what's taught and then go into what can be caught from the spirit. Yeah, that's good that it, those experiences kind of jar us and have us to really like maybe rationalize or think out how that all fits with our experiences when we come into a religious setting or whatever. And then, you know, later on, it kind of grows on us and we understand it. And it's usually like something right there in the middle, right? You know, sometimes yeah. it's like, yeah. it could be these extreme expressions and then you have something right there in the middle. It's like, now you got it. Um, so I want to take advantage of the fact that you were in the military um, and, and that um, that was one of the things I didn't mention in your bio, but it's a real thing. And I've heard you mention it um, a couple of times and you, it's, it's really marked your life. And so why don't we just start with that? Was, how, how was it? You were a Marine and how was that whole military experience for you? I enlisted in the Marine Corps the same day the Lord commissioned me to go into ministry. I didn't want to preach, so I ran to the to the recruiting office and just told the sergeant to sign me up because oh, you I did thought a Jonah. I could get out of it. Yeah, I thought I could get out of it. And just like Jonah went south to go to Nineveh, I went south to Paris Island for training. And I'm telling you, it was a... a it was kind of bittersweet. I enjoyed my time uh, in the Corps. I enjoyed uh, basic training and then afterwards my time in the fleet. But it was just an act of rebellion. But I learned a lot of things that I can use in ministry right now. The order, the discipline, the establishment of purpose, uh, submission to authority, realizing that when you are in authority, you have to live a certain lifestyle so that the people that are following you have a model that they can depend on. And even when I set up the administrative part of the church, I did it along military lines. You know, I did it like a battalion, a regiment, a division, and I set everything up that way with individual leaders over small groups. And that's how we would do it in the Corps. You know, you have a corporal who's over three guys, and then a sergeant might be over eight or nine, and it just goes right up the ladder. And it's blessed me because it keeps me from thinking I have to be Superman when I'm really just called to be the person who sits before God. Mm, that's so good. You know, um, I, I, I do believe that not only are we the family of God, but there is a military aspect to what we do and the fact that you've found a way to incorporate what you've learned from and got from the core and bringing that into how you function and operate as a ministry, I'm sure it's a well-oiled machine and, and things and everybody kind of knows position and place. Would, would you say that's the case? Yes. Yes. I think it helps uh, in building your leadership team. The worst thing you can do as a leader is try to do everything yourself. And what I learned from the Marines is they would delegate down to the lowest person. The concept was even the lowest private should know how to accomplish the mission in case the officers are killed in combat. And what I really liked about the Corps was they trained every, every bit of training was combat oriented, every bit of training, because you never knew you could get the call and you'd wind up in a jungle somewhere. 
And I think the body of Christ has not been trained for warfare. And we're in warfare right now, and the body of Christ, you know, they're looking for ways out rather than fighting and establishing the position of God. We were supposed to be the people who established the kingdom of God and move it forward. And we're, we're running away from a virus. And how can we push the kingdom of God when we're running away from a virus, you know? I mean, there are a lot of promises in the word of God that help us to get through these difficult times. And what we were taught in the Marines was every Marine is a rifleman. No matter what your job is, everybody learned how to shoot. Every Christian ought to learn how to pray, read that Bible, and get a hold of God. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, we could keep going on this. Now, as tempting as it is to ask you questions along the lines of your forensic psychology, we'll save that for another time. We're going to keep digging deeper until this, this military Marine Corps stuff, because, you know, even the Apostle Paul, in talking to Timothy, he talks to him in military terms. People can look it up in 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 4. He, he says, Timothy, you know, endure hardship like a good soldier. He says, don't get caught up in the civilian affairs, the affairs of this life. And you need to live as a, a life pleasing to him who enlisted you. So there it is. There's some military terms there to put into Timothy a mindset of how to navigate, you know, where he is presently. So my question to you is, what are those things that soldiers have to endure in order to be good at their job? You know, and, and maybe use some of your the experience, um, you know, from the Marines. And if you can, if you can relate it now to how it relates to our faith journey. So hopefully yeah, you can. Um, one of the greatest things that I picked up as far back as during the basic training days, uh, when anyone joins the Marine Corps living east of the Mississippi, we all go to Paris Island, South Carolina. And one of the greatest things we learn is teamwork. Uh, it became, I was only 18 years old. I mean, I just come from the streets of Philadelphia. I didn't know about all this warfare stuff. I mean, I ran with street gangs, but it wasn't like this. And, you know, one of the things that we learned was how to function as a team. And I remember one of the instructors made this statement and it stayed with me because I had an aha moment. And that moment came when he said, no matter if you like or dislike the person with you, they may save your life in combat. Mm -hmm. Well, at that moment, I said, oh my goodness, there were guys from Mississippi and Alabama in my platoon that did not care for me because of the color of my skin. Mm -hmm. But we were told that if we were in a combat situation, I have to put those differences aside, they have to put those differences aside and realize the goal is to, to first accomplish the mission, but then watch out for your buddy in combat. Well, I learned that principle and brought it over to the body of Christ, which means I don't get into fights with people because of their doctrine. I don't, I don't argue with people because of what they believe. If they say they're Christians and they love Jesus Christ, that's my brother or my sister, and my job is to do good to all, but especially those of the household of faith. So that unity 
uh, that we learned back then stays with us even today. We can run into Marines on the street and there's a camaraderie because of what we went through. And I think the body of Christ should resonate with that same unity. Mm. Yeah, unity is, is a, a subject that I've been hearing a lot about. And I, I think there's some things that we might be talking about that it needs to be explored deeper. And, and beyond the talk, how do we begin to engage with one another? How do we begin to actually pragmatically do it instead of talk about it? Because I think we agree across the board, unity is, is necessary, it's needed, but the actual teamwork, the actual doing mission together, moving a mission together is, 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 is not always there. Uh, can you speak to that a little bit where sure. we, we're trying to do these teamwork unity efforts that are how you survive and live as, you know, in the army and the Marines that you just need that around you. And why is it so challenging and difficult to do that with those in the, in the faith? Well, I think the first thing we have to do in looking at the military setup here in our country, we have an army, a Navy, an Air Force, and a Marine Corps, and a Coast Guard. And what causes them to be unique is that each one has a separate mission. But the, the overall mission is to defend the United States of America and the constitution of this great country. I think Christians and churches, denominations, and individual uh, local bodies, we don't have a centralized mission. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be the salt and the light of the earth. And we are supposed to be people who influence the kingdom of God on the earth. But unfortunately, this is where the Christian and the culture comes into play. We've been persuaded by the culture to reach for individual greatness and celebrity as opposed to a corporate releasing of the anointing. Mm. So we'll have a church that is what's called a mega church. And that church at that point, you'll, you'll watch they undergo a change. They become more isolated. They become more self-sufficient. They no longer feel that they should give to missions and, and help those other churches that don't rise to that level. Now, when they were smaller, then they went on and helped everywhere because they believe that when you sow seed, God gives back to you. But once they get to the place where they're so-called grown, that changes because the status of the pastor changes he or she begins to look at themselves as a greater person than what they were. And that reminds me of a scripture when God told the king, he said, when you were little in your own sight, he said, I made you the king over Israel. He told Saul and Samuel said, but now that you've grown to this place and you've changed your vision about yourself, I, I can't use you anymore. Hmm. The church is... Uh, we're in a very difficult time because the world doesn't look at us and come to us for answers. Even during this pandemic, even during all, they should be coming to us saying, what should we do? And we should say, repent, turn to God. Mm -hmm. But we're not saying that because we're too busy trying to find answers, which we should have and not even let this stuff bother us, but say, okay, Lord, you're allowing it. 
give me wisdom. Mm. Yeah, I think you're spot on. You know, I think one of our essential uh, missions that we should all be able to agree on is we're called to occupy and advance the kingdom of God in the territory that we're in um, and, and helping each other to do that in those given areas. We should all be about advancing him. Now, uh, but what like Paul is saying to Timothy, we're getting caught up and, and he says, beware not to get caught up in the affairs of this life. You know, yes. tell me what we can, how we can end up losing our focus. Can you just elaborate on what this part of soldiering means to you uh, as far as getting caught up in the affairs of life? It goes back to establishing a distinct identity. When I was in the Marine Corps, when we were coming home for our first liberty after basic, the instructors gave us a list of things we could not do. They said, while you're in uniform, you don't put your hands in your pockets. You don't uh, carry an umbrella. You wear a raincoat, but you don't carry an umbrella. For the guys who smoked, they were not allowed to put the cigarettes in their pockets because it made the pocket bulge. The hair had to be cut a certain uh, length. Everything about you had to say, I was in the Marine Corps. Well, the church doesn't have any identity anymore. We've mm -hmm. become what we beheld. There are two things that influence behavior. This, this goes to my forensic psychology concept. There are two things that control behavior. Number one is genetic. That's what I get from my gene pool in my DNA. The second thing is my environment. The environment can make you do things that's not necessarily in your gene pool, but it's become your normal pattern of behavior. The church has lost its gene pool connection to God because they've become more influenced by the world and the world looks at us and says, you're just like us. You're no different. But in the first century, it said they looked at them and saw they had been with Jesus. Wow. And I think one of the good things about this time is that it has caused people to sit with Jesus and get a better look at him. I know for myself, my love for him has greatly multiplied. And my wife would say to me, she said, one good thing is you're not doing so much. You're able to rest in the Lord and you're able to sit with him. And I'll tell you, my brother, I've been hearing his voice so clearly over these past three months that it has been phenomenal. The mm. culture has been pushed aside and I can hear God's heartbeat. He doesn't even have to speak now. And I think that's where we should be as children of God, we should hear his heart. And God's heart is always love, forgiveness, and mercy. It mm. never changed. That's so it never good. changed. Yeah, you're, you're, you're talking like John the Revelator, right? He was the one who he eased up into the bosom of Jesus and wasn't just part of the, at the table with Jesus. He was against the chest of Jesus. And it's a beautiful picture for us to behold. And I think it's still something for us to be able to take hold of. Up. I think it's, he, he puts that in there for a reason. It shows he's made himself accessible to having us listen to his heartbeat. 
Wonderful. I, I see what you did there too. That was really good. That was clever. You brought in your forensic psychology and the culture, the Christian and the culture, which is uh, when you first talked about that book, it was, it just struck me because it had been conversations. I've been talking to a lot of people about just, you know, uh, I get, I get the relevancy thing, but I think the church has gone overboard with attempting to be so relevant and preoccupied that we've caught having the fear of man. We've gotten into people pleasing. We don't have the fear of God anymore. And we've lost the thing that makes us distinct. And so that's one of the things I appreciate about just your heart um, for the father. And that even as you've grown, you haven't lost touch to lost touch with what's at core and central of what first saved you. What first saved you is what's keeping you and what is going to have you reach the end in style and uh, with with those gracious and beautiful words, well done, good and uh, faithful servant. It's it's um, one of the things I remember most about my childhood was the times I spent with my father. You know, I have an I had an older sister and I have an older brother, and I was the baby of the family. So Daddy would take me to Phillies games. I liked uh, baseball games, so Daddy would take me to baseball games. And when we would walk down the street, because I lived not too far from Connie Mack Stadium, and we would walk to the stadium, and Daddy would hold my hand when we would walk down the street, and I felt ten feet tall because my dad was holding my hand. And we would go to baseball games. He'd buy me a hot dog. We would sit there. And these are the things I remembered the most about my dad was time with him. Well, when the Lord blessed us with our daughter, I would do the same thing. I would take a week's vacation and just spend time with her. And we still laugh about that today. My daughter is grown and moving on with her adult life. And we still laugh about things we did when she was five and six and seven years old. And I think about God. I think about when was the last time I sat with my father, sat on his lap, and just enjoyed his presence. You know, before I'm a preacher, before I'm a bishop, before I'm anything else, I'm God's son. And any father wants to spend time with his child. And I don't want ministry to get in the way of my love for him. I want to be able to just reach out and touch him, to reach out and feel him, to hear his heartbeat. I don't care about all this other stuff. When my time comes, I'm going to leave the church here, all my possessions, but I want to be able to connect with him. And that's something that a warrior does. They connect with the person who called them and they forsake or abandon anything that gets in the way of that calling. Oh, it's well put. You know, we, we're talking about a warrior and there's a warrior's heart. And that's right there. What you just demonstrated and talked about is this warrior's heart. Sometimes we can talk about this military side of things and it seems like it has no affection to it. But um, again, I mean, the last portion, it works well with this last part of that scripture where Paul is talking to Timothy and it says, um, you know, please him who enlists you, you know, are you still pleasing him who enlists you? So there's, there's a sense where that, that, that pleasure part, there's a sense where you've experienced pleasure in the one who enlisted you that you want to please him. So one of the areas that can keep us from 
pleasing him or cause something else to be in command of us, I believe is some of our emotions. Sometimes we're actually giving to our emotions more so than we're giving over to ourselves to just the, 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 the reality of his presence to be in that place, which brings about emotions, but it's, it's, it's from our, our spirit place, the spirit where God takes us spiritually. So if we haven't learned to get our emotions to submit before the Lord's authority, we probably have the potential of going AWOL because potentially that's where a lot of people go AWOL. They, they let their emotions and a lot, a lot of these other things cause them to get psyched out and they just can't do it anymore. So do you want to share what things can cause us to displease the one who enlisted us? Sure. One of the things we learned uh, I, I joined the Corps right after the fall of Saigon in Vietnam. So we did not know if we were going to be called back into active service or not. And so it was kind of, you know, you were kind of melancholy for a while. Every time the phone rang, every time an officer came by, you never knew if you were going to be deployed. And one of the instructors made this statement. He said, listen, he said, just think of yourself as dead already. He said, that way, if you're pushed into combat, you won't be afraid to die because you've already said, you know what? I'm not coming home. I'm going to die. And then you come home, he said, you're surprised and you feel good about it. He said, but if you, if you try to hold on to life, you'll make mistakes. You'll mm -hmm. step on tripwire. You'll do all the things to preserve your life, but you're supposed to carry out the mission. Well, Jesus said the same thing. He said, unless you take up your cross, you can't follow me. And I think so many Christians, you use the term go AWOL, and uh, we used to call it UA for unauthorized absence. And usually when you find those people, they come into one of two categories. Number one, they're extremely lonely for the life they left behind. And number two, they refuse to submit to the military lifestyle. And so we find that people are going AWOL in church because they're lonely for the world. They miss the worldly stuff. They miss the parties and the fun. And that's what's driving so many right now. They say, oh, I miss church and I miss church. I don't miss church. I don't miss God. I don't miss that. I can talk to the people on phones. I don't miss church. I miss gathering for fellowship, but I am the church. So wherever we are, we, we carry that through. And I don't want to go back to the world because it has nothing for me. Mm. A good soldier focuses on the mission. They don't focus on anything else. The mission, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Here's how I rationalized it. If, if when my mother and father would go to work, they would leave lunch for me and they would leave it in the refrigerator for all the kids because we would come home for lunch and everybody's sandwich was marked and placed in the refrigerator. Well, my sister was the oldest. So there were times she would go in there and get our lunch and give it out and say, mama left this for you. Well, I knew of my mother's love because of what she left me, but my sister had the responsibility of passing it out. The world doesn't know God loves them because the people who are supposed to pass out the sandwiches have stopped doing it. Mm. So they're sitting there, they're rioting in the streets, they're demonstrating, and they don't know God loves them. So they think the only people that God cares about are the affluent, 
the prosperity preacher, the person who sits on the hill, but God loves everybody. Yeah. And that's our mission. Our mission is to get that love message out. You know, I, I think about have people experienced that wonderful salvation? Was that an actual experience that they've had that they distinctly felt that God calling them and redeeming them and saving them? Because it's at, at that place of being called into the, the fellowship with the Father that I think causes us to hold on and willing to like give our life to this thing. And, and I, I sometimes wonder, like, was the altar call for you just a get out of free jail card or something? It was like yeah. you kind of something that you, you were banking on that disappointed you. And this is a place where you can cry freely, you know, or was it a truly a salvation, a surrendering, a giving of your life? And you found you found your life when you gave your life to him. And yes. so that's why it's easy to kind of continue to please him because it's like, I can't lose what he's, what's in his hands, what I've given to him. So no matter what I, it appears that I lose, I really, there's so much more that I gain. And I, I, I think it's easier for those who've had those authentic experiences to understand that and live that way, live that way. We have to change the very picture of Christianity. Uh, we have so westernized it that most of the people who come to God, they're coming to get something. And that's how we market. We market Christianity with a capitalistic mindset. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus said, if you come after me, you're gonna be hated, you're gonna be despised, you're gonna lose things. He said, there are gonna be times when you're discouraged and troubled. Paul even says that to the Corinthian church. We tell people, well, when you come to Jesus, you're going to get friends. Things are going to get better for you. And so they come in, and then when they go through a situation that takes those things away, they want to go AWOL. Well, God, you promised me this, and you promised me that. You know what, my brother? I'm not going to be, I tell people all the time, I'm not going to be a pastor when I go to heaven. Nobody's going to call me Pastor Eric. I said, the biggest thing for me is to hear God say, well done. I don't care about all the other stuff. I just want to be where he is. And as a result of that, whatever I go through in this life, Paul said it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to me when I get home. So my goal is to tell others about Jesus, help people get established, help some be trained for their purpose in ministry, finish my course, and go home. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So lastly, are there any military mindsets that translate well in how we should operate in the kingdom of God that we should be aware of that we might have not mentioned here? You know, we talked about those sure. few things that Paul mentioned, but I'm sure there's other things that also work well on how we should operate in the kingdom of God. Yes, discipline. Hmm. Discipline. Uh, fasting is a discipline. Prayer is a discipline. Reading scripture is a discipline. We were disciplined. Uh, even this day, like I said, I was 18 years old when I went into the court. I still remember my rifle number, my general orders, my rank structure. I remember everything they taught us because it was committed 
to my mind, commit it to my memory, and it's still there. Uh, you get disciplined uh, in the military. Secondly, is dependability. They have to depend on me. I walk guard duty, and when I walk guard duty, the people that were asleep were depending on me to keep them safe. They had to depend on me, so I had to be dependable. And we need to be dependable. When, when Moses said to Joshua, gather some men and go out and fight Amalek, and I'm going to go pray, Joshua was dependable. He knew he could count on him. And my question to the body of Christ is this, can God depend on you? Especially when you lose something. Take up your cross and follow me. That means I have to give up something. But can he depend on me? Will my prayer life be as effective when things are going well as it could be when things are not going so well? And God needs to see that dependability. So I would say those are the top two, discipline and dependability. And we see, we see that in the Apostle Paul. He said, I, I beat my body black and blue to keep it down so the flesh does not uh, override the spirit. That's discipline. Mm -hmm. the, flesh will go, the flesh will go any way it wants, but the spirit has to discipline the flesh, and we need to do that. Mm. You know, when this pandemic hit, the, a lot of our routines went out the window, right? <laughs> so yeah. for some of us who are used to, being disciplined, we had to figure out new routines because we knew the benefit of a disciplined life. Yes. And, and for some people, they, you know, it was, they were, it was an extended Sabbath. It was just whatever they yeah. wanted to be. Not that we shouldn't have taken time to rest during this time. Right. But you're, you're right. Like that, that disciplined lifestyle is a, a, a lifestyle that I feel like just brings us into a place of safety and productivity. It brings it to a place where we're able to move forward regardless of what isn't moving forward, isn't moving forward. So I'm so glad that we were able to have you today, Bishop, on this Real Talk with Real Leaders. You know, I, I left uh, and made mention of your, his books and radio and also the television programs, because if you want to hear more, look him up. He is a great voice in this time that just brings these timeless, solid truths and makes them applicable and presentable and attractive for today. So again, appreciate you and your voice and your leadership in this time. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. It's good to be with you.